All right. Well, I think we're going to be able to wrap up this discussion of 1 Corinthians chapter 8. It's just 13 verses here in this chapter. If you want to go ahead and turn there, you certainly can. Just to kind of remind us of this general section and really this introduction to a much larger uh, section. Really this discussion about Christian liberties, about the extent of them, about the way that we are to exercise those liberties and to not exercise those liberties in the body of Christ, where, what constitutes our freedom in Christ and how is that to be exercised? How do we navigate areas where there is no explicit prohibition and or mandate in Scripture to obey or to refrain from certain things? And so it becomes a matter of conscience, a matter of wisdom, and we find ourselves maybe at odds with one another in some of these areas. What are we to do? How are we, how are we to navigate? What are the real, what you some call gray areas in the life of the church, those, those matters of preference where some feel liberty and others feel constrained in conscience? That's what this, this chapter is really all about. And really that's what this large section, going all the way through the first verse of chapter 11 is, is about. It's a very extensive discussion. And uh, so we're just kind of taking this first part of it and dealing with these matters as it relates to the situation on the ground in Corinth that the Apostle Paul is addressing essentially in response to something that was brought to him in communication from Corinth and now concerning food offered to idols, he says in verse 1. That's what, the, that's what the issue on the ground is. And we took some time a few weeks ago to just sort of unpack the background of this whole matter of food offered to idols, meat sacrificed to idols, various translations of it, the various uses of it, I should say, in the New Testament. And how, generally speaking, this practice of of partaking of food offered to idols was an issue in the life of the church that created a bit of a dilemma for believers and certainly the believers in Corinth. Kind of framing it up this way, how are believers to function in a local church with those who are at different stages of maturity or possess unique sensitivities Maybe even struggle with varying matters of conscience regarding certain social or cultural practices and preferences. How are we to function fruitfully and in unity in life in the body of Christ when these realities are in play? And of course, this matter of food sacrifice to idols was a prevalent thing in the life of the first century church in Corinth. Idol worship and the practice thereof was rampant, as we've talked about. And so there was meat that had been sacrificed to idols that was for sale in the market. There was meat that had been sacrificed to idols that would be commonly served at just a normal community event, at a wedding feast, at any number of normal course social engagements. A believer would be confronted with this matter of this food that was literally used in the practice of idolatry and idol worship. So it became this matter of confronting those whose consciences were pricked by such a practice versus those who weren't. And we would just apply it in other ways. We could, we've looked at some more 
you might say, um, lighthearted, though not always so, uh, scenarios. Like, for example, back in the day where, you know, it was just in certain, in certain cultures, certain regions, it was just an unthinkable thing for women to wear pants to church. And we certainly identified and called out all the women in here who were doing so and shamed them uh, profusely for, for violating such a, a clear code. Um, but these, these matters, they, they obviously can run much deeper. It can go into matters of parenting, um, uh, schooling, uh, entertainment and leisure. There's so many different areas where there's differences of view on what believers should or shouldn't do, what believers can or really can't in good conscience practice. <clears throat> and obviously the challenge for us is to not fall off onto one side or another of this narrow pathway that kind of runs along a proverbial ridge line with steep drop-offs on either side. We looked at some of those pitfalls Last time, one would be to fall off into what you might call some version of Christian legalism where, you know, everything is driven by these rules that we have determined constitute what must be adhered to socially, in the way we dress, leisure engagements, all kinds of things that really constitute proper Christian conduct or behavior. And really it's driven by external things, cultural things, social things. Versus Christian license or Christian libertinism, where there is this recognition that we're saved by grace, we are free, as we talked about, from the penalty of sin, and in that freedom, we have freedom to engage in different things without recourse. We should not be judged by these things, we should not be condemned by these kinds of actions. In fact, the, to the extent that we are, are, are sensing this kind of freedom, we're more operating in the grace of God than, than maybe someone else might be operating in because we so deeply understand the depths of God's gracious forgiveness and freeing us completely from the penalty of sin. So therefore, we have license to kind of do, to kind of push the limits of liberty, liberty you might say. When we looked at this, what is essentially the nature or essence of Christian liberty to kind of establish in our minds sort of the foundational principle. What is Christian liberty in principle? And of course, we broke it into those two categories of Christian liberty, meaning that we have been, number one, freed from the penalty of sin. As Jesus said in John chapter 8, whoever the Son sets free is free indeed, and you're set free by the truth, he says. And we're also freed from the power of sin. We looked at a number of passages in Romans that really speak to this in very explicit and thorough terms, in, in the sense that we are, we are the, the freedom that we have gained in Christ from the penalty of sin also results in us being indwelt by the Spirit of the living God. And as we set our minds on the things of the Spirit, we gain freedom from the power of sin, he says, in our mortal bodies, in the physical plane, in us living out our lives. Now, this is not some kind of doctrine of achieved sinlessness in this life that some would advocate. It merely means that we are empowered insofar as we are consistently setting our minds on the things of the Spirit, 
We are legitimately empowered to walk in this real life in freedom from sin's power and hold on us to persistently sin. The trajectory of our life, the pattern of our life, the consistency of our life is completely transformed in real time into more and more consistent faithfulness to what God has called us to and to life in the Spirit. That's the idea. And this is the essence of Christian liberty, of Christian freedom. And for us to reduce it down to petty notions of personal preference, well, God didn't say you can't do that, or God didn't tell me anywhere in his word that you have to do that. So for us to reduce it down to that is to completely minimize what true Christian liberty is all about, namely freedom from the penalty and the power of sin. And then we walk in that. And this is the essence of real freedom, not some notion of power that we have to live out our preferences because we have this knowledge of God's forgiveness. Well, we looked at this principle of Christian liberty last week at length. We looked at these pitfalls that we could fall off on either side and this narrow pathway that we're called to walk in. So let's start talking today about the nature of that pathway, of of the practice of Christian liberty. How do we pull this off consistently? Um, And so we want to kind of look at some of these uh, principles, these guidelines that flow out of the text here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Let me read the passage to you. You can read along with me. We'll get it kind of set up in our minds, and then we'll look at Christian liberty and practice for a little bit. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8, starting in verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to eating, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be, there may be so-called gods in heaven or on, or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Now, I want us to look for a little bit about at some guidelines in this text. Guidelines for practicing Christian liberty. And the first one, these guidelines, I wish I could have, well, I say I wish I could have. I wish I would have, maybe, is a better way to say it. I'm certainly I could have if I would have had more time or given more time to it. 
But I, I, I'm apologizing in advance. They're a little bit lengthy. <clears throat> so if you'd like to take notes, forgive me for uh, the, the sort of the length of these guidelines for practicing Christian liberty. But the first one we want to look at for just a moment is this, that we need to recognize the impact and distinctions between our universal witness and our local church responsibilities. That's a mouthful. Wait till we get to the next one. We need to recognize the impact and distinctions between our universal witness and our local church responsibilities. Both of these things, our universal witness and our local church responsibilities are in play in this passage and are very much in play in terms of understanding how we practice Christian liberty in a fruitful way in the life of the church. In the public domain, when it comes to public witness, we are to be guided and possibly even constrained by our commitment to a faithful and undiluted witness for Christ. Let me say that again. In the public domain, we are to be guided and possibly even constrained by our commitment to a faithful, undiluted witness for Christ. In other words, there is no such thing as a Christian version of what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. You guys remember that whole advertising campaign? If some of you are looking at me blankly, then let me just inform you. There was a whole campaign for, for tourism to go to Vegas, and it was all centered around, you know, come to Vegas, this den of iniquity, and what happens here stays here. Don't worry about it. Everybody understands this is Vegas. That's the idea. Well, there's no sanctified version of that. That our Christian faith is lived out in the public domain as much as it's lived out in the local fellowship of believers. There are distinctions and there are differences of impact that should inform our thinking to rightly approach these matters of Christian liberty particularly when you think about it in the public domain. That's why I say here that we're to be guided and possibly even constrained by our commitment to faithful, undiluted witness for Christ. We might find ourselves in some public setting, in some situation where we decide to avoid a certain kind of act or a certain kind of entertainment or whatever it might be simply because it's public and we don't know who might see us or who might observe us and misunderstand or you know, think wrongly about our Christian testimony, or, or we just don't know. And so we, we, we are liberty, we freely don't engage in what we could do and not be sinning because we want to make sure that our public testimony is undiluted. It's not muddled in any way by someone who might look at us and see something and interpret that to mean something that it doesn't really mean or ascribe to us something about what we believe versus what we say we believe that is simply not true or accurate. So we need to be guided by that. Note the public context of chapter 8, verse 10. He says, For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, a public place. In other words, we need to see this idol's temple not so much as 
you know, our little fellowship table here where we had the muffins and whatnot, but more of a public, civic, communal area. That's what the idol's temple would represent. So it's this public place where there were, there were feasts and there was food and meals and whatnot that would take place, and it would not necessarily be ascribed to some kind of sacred rite or sacred moment or even a sacred setting. It was, it was a public domain kind of thing, and, and he's referencing this, what happens if someone sees you? Those of you who have knowledge of this truth, that there is one God, that, that there is no validity to idols, and so therefore all these, the, all these sacrifices to these idols and the food or the meat that is a result of that is really meaningless. It's, it doesn't commend you. It doesn't take away from your faith. It's just, it's just food. It's just meat. But what if, in that public domain... Someone sees you eating this meat sacrificed to an idol in the temple, in in an idol's temple. Will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? He's drawing a distinction between the person who has this liberty because of the knowledge that they possess that we'll talk about in just a moment, versus the one who is weak in conscience And the mere fact that they see you in a public venue engaged in this partaking of this food sacrifice to idols compels them toward the same act which then violates their conscience, brings about guilt and shame over their ability to not resist what they see as sinful. It weakens that brother even further is the idea. It it is a reference to the significance of impact in public witness. We do have to be informed by that. That is a working guideline and a working principle here that might result in us constraining ourselves from something just because we don't want to be misunderstood and we don't know who might see us. It's not a, fa- it's not a matter of that we're in a setting where we know that there's 20 or 30 other fellow believers of different levels of maturity and understanding and what have you. And so we constrain ourselves simply because they're in the room. It's, it's a public situation. And yet we don't pursue our freedoms in the same way as we might because we're, we're conscious. We're being informed. There's a guideline here. There's a principle here that says, what if someone sees? You need to think about that. It's not a small thing. And then, within the local church community, it amps up significantly. So, in one case, you have what you just might call the public domain and the the importance of an undiluted witness for Christ. But then you move to the local church community, the local fellowship, the local body of believers... And within that local community, we are to be intensely guided. So we are to be guided and possibly even constrained in the public domain. But in the context of the local church, we are to be intensely guided and in some ways most certainly constrained by our commitment to brotherly love and the obligations of mutual edification, of mutual building up. In other words, this intensifies exponentially when you think about the context of the local church. It's very different. And we need to understand and be clear about those distinctions 
And we need to be crystal clear about the nature of this in the life of the church, which is the predominant setting that we're talking about here, even in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. This begins, again, in chapter 8, verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so by introducing this this principle about the nature of knowledge versus the nature of love and how the Corinthians were guilty of having a kind of knowledge or appropriating the knowledge that they had in ways that were arrogant, that were dismissive and and unconcerned about the, the feelings or sensibilities of anyone else around them. And so he's bringing this point to bear. He's saying, listen, you can have knowledge, legitimate knowledge that he refers to later, that legitimately grants you certain liberties In this case, namely, eating food sacrificed to idols, you you don't defile yourself by eating this food. That is, in fact, true. But the fact of the matter is, is that if you're lording it over others, if you're walking in a certain arrogance because you have this knowledge, and so therefore you're exercising your Christian liberty without regard for weaker brothers who possibly might be in your midst, then you're not acting in love. And he draws this sharp contrast and he highlights this importance of us being committed to brotherly love, to genuine brotherly love that serves as part of the guiding overarching principle of how we exercise or restrain ourselves in exercising these Christian liberties. We most certainly are constrained by our commitment to brotherly love and the obligations of mutual edification. So if you pick up the broader context of verse 10 that we read just a little bit ago, starting in verse 8, you see this intensify here. Note the intensity, of, the intensity of this obligation that we have. Chapter 8, verse 8, he says, Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. So yes, your freedoms are legitimate freedoms in this regard. No doubt about it. The knowledge that you have does free you in this way. But verse 9, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And then look at verse 11. And so by your knowledge of this weak person, so, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. You talk about amping up the intensity of this. That is a a significant escalation there. You have this knowledge. It does legitimately grant you this freedom. But that's not all. Take heed. Be cautioned. Your exercise of your legitimate freedom based upon a true knowledge of what is true could result in destroying a brother for whom Christ died. How's that for a leap to intensity? You see in sort of a parallel passage in Romans chapter 14, verses 20 to 21, he says, Do not for the sake of food, do not for the sake of food, come on, he says. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but, is it, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything 
that causes your brother to stumble. So the point here is that our liberties might be constrained by the implications of our public witness. And they're certainly to be constrained by our love for and obligations to our brothers and sisters in Christ, with whom we share intimate fellowship in the local church. And we need to clearly see those implications and those distinctions. Turn with me to chapter 10 for a moment. We're obviously going to get there, Lord willing, eventually. But this is, this really, this is why this whole section I said, it goes all the way through the first verse of chapter 11. It's all about this in different ways, different illustrations and different trails of thought. But listen, listen in chapter 10, verses 23 through the first part of verse 29. Here, listen to how Paul explicitly illustrates this in what are, you, what are really a couple of real-life scenarios in Corinth. And note that this emphasis on public testimony is coupled with the priority of building up fellow believers. He says in verse 23, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. That's a public domain kind of statement. How do we know this? Look at verse 25. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So this is really a fascinating turn here. This is a lot of where Romans chapter 14 goes. So you have someone early in chapter 8 who could be having a weak conscience And their conscience is pricked. It's offended by seeing someone else eating food sacrificed to idols, potentially being led themselves into what they deem to be a sinful activity still. And he's cautioning the brother who has the knowledge and who has a what he calls a stronger conscience, or what he by by inference calls a stronger conscience. He cautions that quote-unquote stronger brother to defer to not do anything to cause this weaker brother to stumble. But here, as he gets further on into the argument, he's even calling potentially weak-conscienced believers, if they're in the market, and it's, it's public testimony time, just in the practice of, of buying food, he says, don't make some big conscience stink over the food sacrificed to idols in the market. But look, look at where he goes. He says in verse 26, For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's, it's clean, so don't worry about it. In other words, overcome your weak conscience here for the sake of your public testimony of faithfulness in Christ and what the gospel actually frees you from. This is your public witness, he says. But then in verse 26, he says, excuse me, uh, verse 27, he says, If one of the unbelievers, he goes further into another scenario, invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Your testimony of what the gospel genuinely does in freeing us from the penalty and the power of sin is not something that you want to muddle 
because you're invited to a meal with an unbeliever and they're serving food sacrifice to idols and you want to draw their attention on the sinfulness, quote unquote, of eating food sacrifice to idols that will completely take their eyes off the ball, the the true message of the gospel. Now all of a sudden, you're conveying to them a gospel of legalism. You're communicating to them that, you know what? Here's what being a Christian means. It means that you don't eat these foods. Some total. So the Apostle Paul is saying, if you're in the market, don't make a stink over this. Your testimony is important here. More specifically, if you're invited to a friend's house and you make the decision to go... The worst thing you could do is to make some kind of stink because they bring you a platter full of meat that was just sacrificed in the temple. But, look at verse 28. If someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. Now get this scenario. You're at a meal, an unbeliever's table, food offered to idols is being served. But you're also at table with a believer of weaker conscience who essentially leans over you and says, this food has been sacrificed to idols. The implication here, we can't do this. He then says, don't eat it. In other words, in this kind of mixed scenario, the priority no longer is some some type of public witness, but deferential love for the weaker brother. The building up of the weaker brother. (coughs) Excuse me. I've been holding off that as long as I could. (laughs) I don't know if you can see my eyes are about to water up here. Anyway. But, but you understand, that, so you've got this setting where you've got both things all of a sudden happening at once. So that's what I'm saying. The public testimony piece is not to be ignored. There are guidelines for us to be informed by in all of this. We do not want our public testimony to become muddled by our myopic focus on preference things, on, on small things that suddenly make people believe that what it means to be a Christian is something so far below and less than what it means to be a Christian. But at the same time, he puts this protecting the conscience of a believing brother over above that in this passage in chapter 10. Now, Obviously, we'll unpack that more when we get to it in a larger context, but I find that to be a fascinating and very instructive illustration for us to consider here. There is this order of things. Public testimony matters. Protecting a fellow believer of weaker conscience because of your genuine love for them and your recognition of the obligations that are placed upon you is of paramount importance. This is, this is the next principle here. In addition to recognizing the impact and distinctions between universal witness and our local church responsibilities, we also need to recognize that protecting the conscience of a fellow believer is a serious obligation that is far more important than our liberties. 
How serious? Let's look at chapter 8, starting in verse 4, reading down through verse 9. Again, I know I'm cycling back through some of this stuff just to kind of pick up the context. He says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Verse 8, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do, but... Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Now, before we talk about the severity of this consequence of not protecting the conscience of a weaker brother, let's talk about what he means in verse 7 about not all possessing knowledge. I think it's important to kind of draw a distinction here. Really, a better literal translation might be not all are in this knowledge. So it's it's, it's a... the nature of the, the language there is, is more walking in this knowledge. So in other words, this is not a reference to an unbeliever who doesn't possess the truth that brings freedom from the penalty and power of sin. This is a reference to a true believer who is in some ways immature in his, his or her uh, thorough and comprehensive application of the truth to all areas of life, including past sinful practices and past associations that were previously defining of you and they were endemic to you. So you can understand this, I think, when you think about it. If you, if you, had, if you lived a life of, of a certain, in a certain strain of debauched living, I mean, it was just like it, it, was, it was a defilement of life constantly. Every, every conceivable you know, Ten Commandment you broke, and that was the pattern of your life. Every, every strain of self-centered indulgence was just sort of characteristic of who you were. And you lived in that sort of lifestyle, and those were your associations. Those were the people that you ran with, and it was, it was, it was something that defined you. Like your, your identity was in all of this, and then God graciously saves you opens your eyes to the truth of the gospel. You begin to sense and experience the liberty of Christ's freeing salvation, liberating you from the penalty of sin. But you don't immediately just separate your thinking and your patterns of thought from all that was just defining of you. It was completely all-consuming of who you were. You don't just eliminate yourself from that. So you, you know the truth. You have embraced the truth. God's given you faith to, to believe in Christ and to receive the Spirit and to begin to grow and work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But man, the slightest hint of this association or this practice or this kind of image, whatever it might be, and you just immediately feel weak and vulnerable or your, 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 your conscience is pricked, you feel like at any moment you could fall back into those patterns of sin. This is what he's talking about here. It's a true believer, but it's a believer who is 
immature and still working things out and still growing and still having to apply as we have to apply for the totality of our lives the truths of the gospel over and over and over again. If you find yourself at any point seeking counsel from anyone in our counseling ministry, probably what you will hear from them is a phrase that says, you need to preach the gospel to yourself. Over and over and over and over again. Lifelong, preach the gospel to yourself. So, in this kind of scenario, you have this believer who is embrace, has embraced the truth, but they still struggle with these associations and with this lifestyle and the practices of this lifestyle. And it makes them feel vulnerable and weak and susceptible to temptation. Or even getting around it, they feel like that they're going to find themselves in sin. And it's, it's very difficult. It's provoking to them. John MacArthur, in his commentary, describes it this way. Not all believers were mature in their knowledge and understanding of spiritual truths. Some were new Christians, freshly out of paganism and its many temptations and corruptions. They still imagined that idols, though evil, were real and that God and that the gods the idols represented were real. They knew that there was only one right God, but perhaps they had not yet fully grasped the truth that there is only one real God. Even if they did understand that there was only one real God, the experiences of their past paganism were so fresh that they rejected all that was related to it. To participate in any way was to be tempted to fall back into former practices. So this is, this is the person that he's referring to here. This is, this is the person that you're called and I'm called to love and care for deeply, intensely, regardless of what we know to be true about this action or that action, that food or that food. It, it, it's this person and where they are and, and the nature of their conscience and their growth and their maturity. That's where we're supposed to center our care and our concern. Not on the fact that, well, we know that that's not real food that's going to affect us in any way. Come on. What? That's knowledge that puffs up. But love builds up. And to note how intense he is about this, look at how he describes the offense committed by the believer who possesses this knowledge and thereby exercises his or her Christian liberty without regard for the weaker brother or sister. In verse 9, take care that this right of yours does not not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Verse 11, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Verse 12, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. The act, in other words, in and of itself, eating this food, for example, is clearly not sinful. However, when the act creates a stumbling block over which a weaker brother trips and falls, that becomes a sin of enormous magnitude and consequence. This is, this is the, the depths of understanding about Christian liberty that believers need to be walking in. It's not that we can. It's whether or not we should. And that's going to be determined largely within a local body of believers as we know and understand what will provoke the conscience of weaker brothers and sisters. 
It's too big a cost. And we need to understand that our view of this, our our understanding about protecting the conscience of a fellow believer, it is indeed a serious obligation for us. And it's far more important than any Christian liberties that we rightly could exercise. Far more important. Finally, we'll close with this. We need to recognize, there's another guideline here, we need to recognize that we are no more like Christ than when we willingly set aside our freedoms for the sake of others. Right? What more motivation do we need? Let me say it again. We need to recognize that we are no more like Christ himself than when we willingly set aside our freedoms for the sake of others. The Apostle Paul in verse 13 kind of puts a bow on this. He says, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And as I said, this whole section continues all the way through chapter 11, verse 1. And listen to what he says in chapter 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is about our being like Christ. Who Paul describes in Philippians chapter 2 like this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. That is freedom. Unquestioned unending, perfect, eternal freedom. He didn't consider it something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So when we look at this matter of whether we should or shouldn't, is that something we're free to do? Should we not do it? We can sum this up quite simply to say we're called to be like Christ. Our calling unto salvation, Ephesians says, is so that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. So, if this or that liberty, if this or that preference matter causes my brother to stumble, I don't need it. I willingly and freely constrain myself for the sake of my weaker brother or sister's conscience so that they can be built up, so that they can continue to grow, so that they are not led into some other strains of sin. 
And that is what the body of Christ does for one another. It's important for us to note that we are all weak conscienced in certain areas. All of us. This is not some kind of ranking system of the immature and the mature. Put yourself into both categories. We're all in both categories. This is about faithfulness and fidelity to the gospel and to what Christ has called us to. So God help us, right? Let's pray.